then the next thing I heard you say was, right, hysterectomy. And I looked at the art line and it had gone flat. And I'll tell you now, my knees buckled. (laughs) And and at that point, I thought, right, you know, as Matt was just saying, he just stepped out for a second. It says it's like being at the top of a roller coaster and you're about to go down. You thought, right, here we go. Yeah. You know, it was uh, it was pedal to the metal from there. Welcome to episode 48 of the Obson Guy and Crit Gear podcast. Okay, welcome back everyone to um, this week's podcast. So uh, this week we've got together a group of people, so hopefully it records well, but we're going to do a, um, a bit of a sort of roundtable discussion about uh, teamwork and management of unexpected um, high-risk obstetric cases after hours. Um, so Parvesh, was in uh, the last um, podcast we did, is going to um, sort of lead the discussion because he was involved. Um, do you want to um, yeah, so uh, Yeah, thanks, Roger. Uh, so I just wanted to talk about um, a case that um, uh, myself, uh, um, um, Matt and Matt, that's uh, Matt Epi, the surgeon, and Matt Rutledge, the colonistist, and, uh, and plus some other people uh, who we won't mention at the moment. Well, it's not that we don't want to mention them, but anyway, I'm digressing. Um, <laughs> um, is, uh, and it was basically an unplanned um, emergency proce- emergency cesarean section for someone with a morbidly aderrant placenta and just to set the scene it's uh, someone that we had known of um, it was someone who had had two previous cesarean sections in the past and uh, and would have had a planned cesarean section at some point but she happened to turn up to the hospital preterm in labour and um, this all sort of occurred out of ours. And the point of us doing this is the it, we managed it, I thought, in my eyes, pretty well. And there was lots of clinical and non-clinical points that I just wanted to share with everyone. And I think it's just, uh, it'd be a good forum to do this on. So um, we'll just sort of talk, start by talking, and you know, guys, just interject at any point if you, you know, um, let's talk about the perioperative planning of, of this patient now. Um, uh, as I said, this is a, a, a woman who was preterm and she had a, a, a morbidly placenta and she came in labour and um, we, we needed to plan an out-of-hours procedure for this patient. Um, I thought um, the planning for this patient was really, really good where we had lots of people. We, had to, we really had to coordinate quite a lot, didn't we, Matt, mm. in terms of the, uh, you know, not just the staff in theatre but we had to make sure what else was going on on the label ward. We had to make sure that there was no surprises that were going to pop up. So the actual consultant on the floor was quite on the, on the money and thought, you know what, before we get cracking with this very high risk, very complex case, he wanted to make sure that there's no surprises that all the current patients on the label ward were going to sort of spring up and, 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 and sort of disrupt our flow, so to speak. Um, there was also um, getting th- people like your haematologists and scientists on board and calling in extra theatre staff um, involved and that all took quite a bit of planning but what do you remember what time we got called you or we told you about it I think you found out about it quite early in the day you called me about nine o'clock to say that it will be happening later on at night so I sat there for the next several hours worrying about it and then I think (laughs) I came in around about 12.30 yeah it was kicked off sometime after that I think and Matt you you because I saw you on the labelled on it must have been about seven or eight seven o'clock, p.m. seven p.m. Seven p.m. So yeah. I, I was made aware of that patient in the morning, 
And the plan was from the original team was to transfer her to the placenta accretor team so we could plan her surgery accordingly. And there was no, uh, at this point of time, she was not in labor, she wasn't bleeding, so there was no urgency. But I found out from 5 p.m. around, the, one of the doctors called me and said, I know this patient has been electively transferred to you at some point, but she's actively contracting and things might change, so could you please come and review her? And then uh, we realized she was actually contracting a little bit and a little bit more and she started to bleed. So uh, bearing in mind this patient was in a specialized team because she has an abnormal placenta, which was uh, three times thicker than any other placenta. It's a specific disease that we don't have the histopathology confirmation yet. And so I, I, I came to the hospital and assessed the situation, uh, spoke to the obstetrician in, on call on the day and uh, we started planning things from there. So it was interesting because uh, I went into that room with you to review that patient the first time and you were pretty relaxed before you went in. I'm not saying you weren't relaxed afterwards, but there was definitely a change uh, when you examined her and you said, I think we're doing this tonight. What was, your, what was going through your head then? Because you, you'd already had a look at the scans. Um, it wasn't going to be straightforward, was it? No. So there are two, two reasons here. So the specific disease that she had, which was a very thick placenta, it's called a very vilous, massive fibrin deposition that's the big name of it but what it means is for reasons that are difficult to understand yeah those patients are more likely to go into preterm labor do severe abruption and have fetal death so once she was tightening i was in my head it was just a preterm labor and then she said i'm also bleeding so from tightening and bleeding we move from preterm labor to abruption which is exactly what happened so at that time I said, no, we definitely need to deliver this, this uh, lady now. And the concern looking at the placenta was that not only the placenta was extremely thick, but it was also covering the complete anterior wall of the uterus. So we had to think um, out of our usual way to deliver the baby. And you did something unusual, didn't you? Well, we can come to that, mm. or do you like to talk about that? Or maybe we come to that we'll later. Oh, yeah. Suspense, it builds. <laughs> okay, so uh, we'll just try and progress along the line that we were. So um, just to sort of set the scene, you know, it, the, you know, we've all tried to uh, clear out the label as much as we can. Um, we've got all the staff that we need. The neonatologists have been made aware. The extra theatre staff have been brought in, and... We've got two uh, anaesthetic techs, and we've asked for cell salvage. We've got the we've got some blood available, and we've got some blood products available. And then we've got everyone, and we made sure we had everybody in theatre before uh, we got started, and we wanted to um, be very meticulous in our WHO um, checklist, so our sign in. So that everyone, uh, so we everybody got introduced. I thought that was really, really good. It was very reassuring to know there was a consultant neonatologist there, and plus her team. Um, you know, um, everybody had. Um, what, did, what did you think about um, the team model? Uh, Matt? Yeah, well, I thought it went really well, and I think sometimes we, uh, when we do things at night, we often do things differently than we do during the day. Cut corners. We do, and. Um, and I think this case worked well because we kind of brought the daytime to the night. It almost felt in that theatre that it was the middle of Tuesday afternoon. You know, it was we had all the key people there, and we knew where other people we might need were, and they were all very much involved as well. Um, so not only introducing everybody and knowing that they're all there, it was also really teasing out the specific roles. So from our point of view, there were three anaesthetists, which again was 
was a, a, a real privilege to have, and we all knew exactly, I think, what we were doing, who yeah, was managing we were, what. We allocated our roles, didn't we, well? And we also thought ahead, you know, what if this happens? What are we going to do, and how are we going to manage that? And I know we had a specific conversation about um, aortic compression. So if we did start bleeding heavily, uh, which one of the surgical team were going to be responsible for that? And we'll talk a little bit more about aortic compression, I think, a bit later. Um, so we had our defined roles, and, and I think really sort of encouraging all members of the team, whether they're the orderly or the doctor, to contribute and to raise any other issues that we haven't thought about. Because I, I have to say, that's one of the points which I thought were really good, and I hadn't thought about it, and I will definitely think about it in the future, is to have the orderly or the porter in as a part of that team mm -hmm. huddle. Because, uh, you know, when, when you need someone to get something you've made them a part of that team and they feel valued mm. and uh, and and we had a very good orderly on and you know he was able to go and get blood and do other uh, things that we couldn't do at the time and when when you make someone a part of that team they just feel so much more valued and they know they're yeah, they're, they're, they're a part, part of that team they're an integral part of that cog so we needed blood and that was our those mm. he was our legs for well, he literally was the legs to go and get them yeah um are we going to talk about our anesthetic management yeah, I don't think there was anything too dramatically... No, I wouldn't say it was a plan A, it's more like Yeah, C, yeah, but, I uh, think, uh, well again, we went straight for a general anaesthetic. Yeah. I think for this case that was, uh, obviously you could have done it with a regional block. Um, I think we made the right decision. Definitely. Um, <laughs> and I think in these cases, and we were just discussing before we went on air about um, how we've maybe changed a little bit over the years. And uh, she was fasted, she was slim. Um, her risks of a general anaesthetic were relatively uh, small, I'd say. Yep. Um, and I think doing this under a regional block would have been quite risky, both in terms of sympathetic yeah. block, and also if you did need to convert to a general anaesthetic when she was bleeding heavily, then you're then exposing her to the risks of lots of cardio. That was a spoiler. Depressant. She does bleed. Um, <laughs> if she was to bleed. The last thing she needs is, is um, anaesthetic drugs to... To, yeah. to get off to sleep and put a tube in. So yeah. starting off with a general anaesthetic with the airway secure, with the lines all in, you feel very confident. And I think for these kind mm. of cases... It's one less thing to think about, isn't it? You know, the conversion. It's com the communication yeah. too. So when someone's bleeding out and they're awake, you, you also have to communicate with them. Sometimes their partner's there. Yeah. That just distracts you from keeping them alive. You know, yeah. it's just another task you don't need. Isn't it? And I think, you know, if, if we've got a... Uh, a likely a creator or, or you know where we think it's probably going to be okay and it's the yeah middle of the day and we're all good then it's you know we've had those discussions we we can consider obviously keeping someone awake and we often do that and we they they, they remain comfortable throughout this case was very different things were evolving very fast there was likely abruption in fact her hemoglobin was 70 by the time we started yeah. the case and it was 90 when i started so but it significantly got very quickly day. yeah so yeah. so it was I, I think it was very much the right yeah. thing to do so it was a very straight i'd say a straightforward yeah. fairly classic rapid modified rapid sequence induction yeah um, with an art line yeah with an arterial line in place and two big cannulas. she was pretty stable wasn't she i think yeah. she was so yeah. there's really not much uh, i would like to say it was probably much slightly more clever than that but yeah it wasn't <laughs> it was, uh, it was you know it was actually pretty easy pretty just standard. one thing to ask about you matt is uh if she had gone to term yeah would you have uh, uh, with her condition and her uh, particular placenta would you have said that she should still have a general anesthetic or would you have what would you have thought 
Because you, you think she would have had a, a greater chance of bleeding? I mean, this is very hypothetical. Yeah, so hypothetically, I would say every time I believe that we're going to do a midline yeah. incision on the abdomen, that means GA for you. Right, okay, got you. That's another spoiler. <laughs> okay. Um, so listen, shall we talk about the surgical approach? This is not the Game of Thrones. Shall we talk about the surgical approach? Well, we might. We yeah. might. While, while we're here. So yeah. she's uh, very preterm. She's 26 weeks. And the challenges are, one, she's placenta accreta. And second, the anterior placenta is completely covering the anterior uterine wall. In other words, there's no direct access. And if you try the direct access in those circumstances with 26 weeks, you end up one going through the uterus and a thick uterus so you end up having a very sick baby and you also end up having what you hate to see in placenta accreta is somebody traumatizing the placenta before the delivery of the baby because the bleeding starts straight away is it also possible to traumatize the baby as well I and mean, if you're going through Absolutely. placenta and you can't it's, see uh, the main the main is. concern for us would be beyond uh, the mother is if you go through such a big placenta mm -hmm. to find such a small baby of 800 grams uh, the baby start bleeding straight away, yeah. and the reserve at 800 grams is don't cut me, but it's probably not more than 100 mils. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So it doesn't take a long time for the baby to be completely anemic. Grams per kilo, so that's more like 100 grams, 800 grams, or something like that of blood. Yeah. So the the intent was to deliver the baby without encroaching on the placenta, and the only option we had was to go posteriorly on the uterus, and hence the decision to do a, a classical incision on the midline on the abdomen and then integrate the uterus out of the the abdomen of the lady and then have access to the posterior uterine wall and then do a classical incision on the posterior uterine wall and deliver the baby in the membrane so uh, achieving that we've already achieved the baby is delivered without any trauma right and the second thing we've done from the mother perspective is she's got no trauma too so we can say well let's wait and see what this placenta is behaving like mm. and remember the placenta here was completely abnormal being three times the normal size as mm -hmm. one should be so the placenta in these circumstances we ask you not to give any uterotonics yes so we don't create any contraction that we don't want or don't need to so we can ab observe the behavior of the placenta a little bit and at this stage this is when things become hairy quite quickly because you always or almost always have a spontaneous separation of the happy placenta. Right. The placenta accreta is never a placenta accreta of the whole placenta. It's always a portion, right. mm -hmm. which could be a 10%, a 15%, a 20% that yep. is strictly adherent. So you could have a partial separation and everybody looks like, oh, it's coming. Yeah, hold on. The easy bit, the bit that wasn't adherent has come out. Yeah. but we don't know about the adherent bit yet. So yeah. this is what happened here. So the parts started to separate and it looked reassuring. And then suddenly we came to the lower segment where we knew from the ultrasound that this is where the accretion was. And as soon as this part was coming, she started to bleed profusely. Well, I remember that uh, very, very clearly because yeah. uh, you said, oh, it's coming. And I said, get some oxytocin. I started drawing that up. And then you said, then the next thing I heard you say was, right, hysterectomy. And I looked at the art line and it had gone flat. And I'll tell you now, my knees buckled. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and at that point, I thought, right, you know, as Matt was just saying, he just stepped out for a second. It says it's like being at the top of a roller coaster and you're about to go down and you thought, right, here we go. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, was pedal to the metal from there. That's it. And, and this is why it's important for the, from the surgical point of view to be 
quite clear about what your intentions are depending on what you're going to see. So we never know what to expect because adherence is adherence. Some will be adherent but will still separate. That's why all our patients in placenta accreta do not end up with hysterectomy. But some will separate or won't, or if they do, they bleed a lot. Right. You yeah. got all this information within 15 seconds. And the key is, what mm -hmm. do you respond to those 15? How, do you, how quickly do you respond to the 15 seconds? That was very quick. What about the, uh, you gave me some really sort of lovely golden nuggets uh, when we had a little discussion afterwards about the manual aortic compression. Do you think you could share some of those with me now? Because with us now, so, you know, about, you know, the difference and where you stand. Like, yeah. So um, I think in our planning, we knew that we we could have needed to, to do aortic compression. So we doing an, a midline incision allows a good access to the aorta. So we could actually look, this is the IVC, this is the aorta. But technically speaking, the aorta is on the left side of the patient and the IVC is on the right of the patient. So when we're doing this surgery, usually the guy doing the hysterectomy is standing on the left side, i.e. the best possible side to do compression. <laughs> and the assistant is standing on the side where the IVC yeah. is facing him. So it's much better to have a direct access of what you're doing but you have to bear in mind that the whoever is in charge of the IVC in this scenario or the outer in this scenario is actually having the IVC just in front of him and he has to bypass the IVC to compress the outer, which they usually do quite perfectly until they are distracted by other duties. Yes. So the assistant so. starts with I'm pressing and everything looks good, but then suddenly I ask, could you please hold that for me? Can you please expose that for me? And then suddenly there's a lack you can't concentrate on so many yeah. things at the same time. And it's not unusual to see that they are now pressing on the IVC. And all the good result that you suddenly realize from your end, what's happening here? Yeah. She's bleeding more and she's getting on well very quickly. It's just possibly because instead of pressing on the outer, as we believe, we're actually pressing. Mm. Do you think IVC. when we're doing it externally, because not all of our patients will have midline incisions mm. where they're mm. able to perfectly mm. visible, um, you know, you know where uh, you know the you know Roger and, and Matt have told me here that manual aortic compression in someone who's bleeding is really good. You can just put a, you can almost put your fist into yes. the abdomen. So I've definitely been involved in cases uh, where there's been no incision. It's you know vaginal delivery of an unexpected accretor, mm. and man just midline manual compression of the aorta, which presumably includes both, mm. has been incredibly effective. Yeah, you know, basically someone who's in PEA arrest. I mean, if you're with no circulation, the, the, including the aorta and the IVC. Yeah, the IVC is not going to refill, is it? So no, that's right. And no, I think it's someone who's hypovolemic and is basically empty. There's yeah. not much coming back up the yeah. IVC anyway. So you, would you adjust uh, having what Matt's just told us now? Would you adjust really, the technique at all? But well, I, don't, I, th I think if you can't see what you're looking at, I think um, you don't really know what you're doing. No, you can't really be that precise, can you? What do you think? No, no you can't. But I think you have to be aware of that. Yeah. So I, I think, think if really you're doing useful. the resource from your end, yeah, and the surgeon or whoever is doing the compression is doing what you believe is right, but you don't have the expected outcome of what. You should happening. then ask him to check where they have Yeah, do yeah. you want to go more on the left, please? I yeah. think you're better off being so aware. So this that. is really useful nugget. Yeah. So then you can say, listen, I don't think. Can you just double check what you're pressing on and make sure you are compressing the aorta? Actually, just ask them to push a bit more on the left side of the yeah. patient, so they will probably understand what you mean by that. Yeah. And. It works most of the time. I think it works well. Oh, but if you don't have it. if you don't have yeah. the outcome that you're expecting, yeah, it could be that without knowing, we actually pressing more the IVC than the out. I mean, no, to be honest, it felt like at some when it when it was once we gave a bit of fluid or blood, I should say, 
it did feel like I was doing a triple A because you know when you sort of when you normally when you do that cross clamp on the aorta, the blood pressure uh, mm. uh, shoots up. Shoots yeah, up, yeah. and exactly what that's exactly. Well, that's what exactly happened. what you're doing. That's really? exactly what we, and yeah. that's exactly what you were doing. Yeah. You're just doing it not with a clamp. You're just doing it with a thumb, and it, it kind of worked really nicely. Yeah. Um, uh, right. Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was manual aortic compression. <laughs> um, um, so she started bleeding quite heavily, and um, and I just told uh, uh, I just said that you popped out for a second. Um, and I just said, you know, when we were discussing like being at that top of that roller coaster, and you thought, here we go, we need some blood. Yeah, that's right. We need some yes, blood now. Now, um, before I came to uh, uh, and, and sort of work with these guys, um, I my management of hemorrhage or major hemorrhage was uh, sort of from the teaching that's come from sort of Afghanistan and Iraq about you know your proportions being sort of one, uh, one to one to one when it comes to blood FFP and platelets. Now I've learned since um, being here from all the work that these guys have done, um, that's Roger Matt, and Matt uh, with um, um, point of care testing, um, that what you really need and what really works is fibrinogen yeah. and cryoprecipitate. And that's because you've all done um, Point of care testing using Rotem or uh, thromboelastogram of, sort, of sorts. We use Rotem here. And what I thought was really interesting was that when the patient started to bleed, was we asked for empirical, we empirically asked, or well, Matt, you should say what you what you did. What was going through your head at that time? Because it wasn't going through my head. You know, I was worried about my my pants. You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, I, I <coughs> we'd seen some significant bleeding very quickly yeah and um, the expectation was that that was going to be short-lived and all would be well but you you've always got to think of what might happen and that bleeding might continue uh, we had blood to give um, and we had other fluids to maintain uh, the bulimic status but my worry was that we could cause a dilutional from a dilutional coagulopathy and um, we should preemptively give some coagulation product and like you say, the thing in obstetric hemorrhage that's most important is fibrinogen. There is fibrinogen in FFP, but not much. And Roger's the yeah. expert on this. And yeah, so this came up in the major hemorrhage workshop that I did uh, with Graham uh, on the weekend. So, and we've, we, sh we sort of shared that with participants. So the, co the concentration of fibrinogen in FFP is 1.6 grams per litre. I'm not sure uh, which country that's from. In uh, cryo, it's eight grams per liter, and in fibrinogen concentrate, if you if you use that, it's twenty grams per liter. So one point six grams per liter is actually less than what you're aiming for. So you can't use FFP to keep replace to replace fibrinogen. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, if you give it to someone whose fibrinogen is above two grams per liter, you're going to make it lower, not higher. So it's it's not something you should be using mm -hmm. empirically. That's my personal opinion. Just to play devil's <coughs> advocate, yep. and coming from a place where I've used FFP a lot. What, if I, uh, you know, if I had given FFP, what's your, in your mind, what do you think is going on? You know, what am I doing to this patient by giving FFP? I'm not giving obviously enough enough fibrinogen. Yeah, but so what I think else is going it's on? making you feel better. Yeah. It's probably not fixing anything that's gone wrong in the patient. So the patient probably doesn't, what it is good at is uh, helping the, the, that part of the coagulation cascade that generates thrombin. But usually in the early stage of a hemorrhage, that's not a problem. You usually need to lose, lose four or five litres of blood before you sort of impair that because there's a lot of redundancy in that system. So it's not going to prevent or fix fibrinolysis. You need to give tranexamic acid. It's not going to help with fibrinogen deficiency. Yeah. 
um, because of the reason we just mentioned. It's not going to help with platelets, obviously, because it doesn't have platelets. So the three, the, the first two things, which are the most common, fibrinolysis and fibrinogen deficiency, are by far and away the most common problems that you encounter. So it's not going to help either of those. It's not going to help with platelets either. And it will help with thrombin generation, but that's usually a very late thing. So it's not going to help with anything, really. And, and the downsides are it's actually full of citrate. So someone who's really shocked, you could make them hypocalcemic and mm -hmm. be poor in leaps. And that could make them vasoplegic and impair their cardiac function, and et cetera. So, so my yeah my uh, my advice is if you need if you haven't got if things are so bad that you haven't got time to do any sort of testing, you just got to empirically pour stuff into someone, mm. give them tranexamic acid and fibrinogen and red cells. And that fibrinogen can be via cryoprecipitate. Yeah, it depends or what you have available. That's right, and it depends what you have available. Yeah, yeah. So whatever's available to you. Wherever yeah. you are. So, uh, yeah, and, and there's various wherever you are. But I know a lot of places do now have fibrinogen concentrate, and that's certainly the thing you should use if you don't have a laboratory that can give you cryo straight away. Right. So, I think <coughs> in this case, uh, even though we were using uh, near patient tests of the coagulation, we didn't wait to do that. And I think it was simply because of the speed at which the bleeding was initially. Yeah. Um, uh, and the feeling was that things could get worse, so we gave it empirically. That could be argued as being the wrong thing to do, but I think in this situation it was probably the correct thing to do. Well, as a surgeon, I feel very comfortable for you to give it straight away. I think we started with a hemoglobin of 70, mm. and we started on a petite woman. So uh, capacity to tolerate heavy blood loss oh, in a few so seconds. So, yeah, yeah, so I, I think it's not time to faff around with multiple tests. It's time yeah, to, no. we know we need replacement. In fact, can see it coming out. We so shouldn't have started at 70. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. we're already in a catch-up situation. So for a, a surgeon point of view, it's quite reassuring to know that we're going straight for blood uh, in those circumstances. Good. I'm trying to think what happened after that because there was a. It was a bit of a. I mean, we got control quite quickly. You know, once uh, once the. His, the uterus was out, yeah. um, and we got on top of the the, the sort of the, the coagulation and mm. the, 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 the you know her hemoglobin. I don't think she did. Uh, I mean, her blood gas was never that deranged. I think we stayed on top of things. We had we had an amazing staff. There's no doubt about that. And communication, I have to say, is the other thing that I must mention. Is there was we always talk, always talk about closed loop communications and. I felt like there was several loops going on. There was definitely the loop between the two senior surgeons with the scrub nurse. They were constantly communicating with each other. As amongst us as anaesthetists, we were constantly talking about, you know, if I was giving, I was in charge of the Belmont and if I gave a fluid bolus, I'd say, right, fluid bolus is given. You know, uh, Paris was doing something else. You were doing something else, Matt. And then when we had to communicate between each other as, as a team, as over the the curtain I think we kept that loop closed quite mm. well as well what do you think Matt yeah no I think so yeah no, that's the nice thing we just keep the keep the curtain low so you can see the whites of each other's eyes and communicate yeah and I think that went on, on and our hematologist well. kept a close eye on us as well that was a difficult, <laughs> to get, difficult to get away from him. but you know she mm. was very very helpful I must say and we had a really good scientist didn't we we did yeah yeah um, and something I'll definitely take away from this is to is to thank people afterwards, which is what you did. I think that it makes people feel really valued. Yeah, I, th I think I think it's a really important thing. And I I learned that when I was a registrar um, in London. Um, one of the consultants, on when we had a quiet moment, would uh, would go down have, have breakfast. Actually, thinking back, and so I was just a trainee, and then uh, we would go back via the hematology laboratory. Um, yeah. 
just to say hello to the the staff and um, and we rarely go down and see the people no, we don't, do we? who are working so hard under a lot of pressure and all these phone calls coming in asking where's the blood can you do this can you do that and I think it's really important to just maintain um, good communication and with them nice and good relations yeah, yeah. Yep. Uh, and we're very quick to ask for everything when things are going wrong but we sometimes forget to say things are okay now um, so I, yeah I think a phone call at the end of the case or when things are settled down mm. just to say thanks for your help we're all in control um, is, is a easy thing to do and, yeah, and it's good. allows that sort of respect and acknowledgement of the great amount of effort they put into these cases. We should probably do that more, shouldn't we? Make, uh, you know, I'm not saying, you know, everyone has, you know, in the middle of the night, everyone had an important role to play. There was no yeah. bystanders. Um, and I think I'm probably... Yeah, we couldn't have done it without the haematology Not at all. Support. Not at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, we couldn't have done... We wouldn't have been able to give her all the products without our really good orderly Brian. Yeah. You know, it was Brian, wasn't it? Bill. It was Bill. Sorry. <laughs> but Brian's a good orderly too. Yeah, Brian's yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> As are they all. Yeah. Um, but you know, I think probably it's it's one of those things like you know, and we and you know we've recently introduced like you know the awesome and amazing case of the week, mm. or was it the month? Was it the month? Oh, is it M&M? So I don't think we have enough to fill a week now. Yeah. <laughs> we're, not, we're not that awesome all the time. This is a one-off. Yeah. It's only a one-off. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other issue we mentioned is self-salvage, just oh, yes, from, yeah. a, from a yeah. technical side. There's, there's a few things, I guess, to, to think about that. And again, we, we had the, um, you know, ideally in, in all hospitals, you should be able to run an out-of-hour self-salvage service. So it is difficult because you do yeah, need extra people to do that. And... Um, uh, we're fortunate at this hospital that we can generally do that. Um, and again, sort of having that communication with the surgeon and the scrub nurse who's manning the uh, cell saver sucker, how to use it effectively so you can really sort of maximise the, the yield yeah. of blood. And in these kind of cases, uh, and again, there's a little bit of debate and we can talk about this another time, uh, about using separate suckers for amniotic fluid. This to me is a case where you just go straight for... One sucker, no just maximise everything. And to be honest, you know, as we are doing, generally doing yeah. now, and many other places around the world, just using one sucker, getting amniotic fluid into the uh, cell saver, as we've discussed previously on podcasts, is uh, probably entirely safe. Um, and knowing that you're going to bleed right from the outset, um, using the cell saver from the start is yep. really important. And remember, if you are doing well with your cell salvage and you're getting lots of blood back, remember that there's only blood in there, i.e. red cells yeah, suspended right. in saline. And people have been caught out when they're transfusing this that you're then potentially leading to a dilutional coagulopathy. So you do yeah, have to keep right. on top of replacing yeah. coagulation factors and other things. Okay. Is there anything else that anybody else wants to say? No, I think it's, well, I think it's been a pretty good discussion. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, are we? Uh, yeah, c'est fini. <laughs> All right, I just want to thank everyone for um, a really good discussion, and uh, we'll um, close it there. Thanks, Babish. Yep, yeah, thanks, Roger. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, thanks Roger. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Roger. Matt. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.obsandgynecritcare.org where there'll be lots of show notes and links to interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.